Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's uh, August the 5th, 2021. It's the morning, and in that introduction, I talk about privilege of having a show where I get to talk to many of the world's leading writers and thinkers, uh, but they're also interesting people in their own right. And that's one of the, the great things about this show is every day I get to talk to someone different about something um, very different, very sometimes profound, sometimes less profound, everything from the fall of Rome to unemployment to ending mass uh, incarceration in America from Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook to the cult of WeWork to Ben Rhodes, one of Obama's people on the crisis of democracy. Above all else, though, I get to meet strangers and I get to talk to them. Books are often confessional. They are always deeply autobiographical, whether they're meant to be or not. So, for example, one of my favorite shows recently was my conversation with Richard Leder, uh, who's written a book on, on what it means to grow old. And it was a wonderful conversation, at least for me, in terms of learning not just about the thesis of his book, but about Richard himself. Uh, conversation then is the, the heart of, of my business, of Keen On. And I'm thrilled that there's a new book on the value of conversation and the value of strangers. Most of the people on the show uh, sometimes they're old friends, but they're mostly strangers. Um, my guest today is uh, Joe Cohane. He has a new book out, The Power of Strangers, The Benefit of Connecting in a Suspicious World. He's a stranger, but I hope he's not a stranger for long. Uh, Joe, uh, this idea of the power of strangers, it's quite an autobiographical book. You, you write about how you grew up in a, in a very garrulous family and you learned your ability to talk to strangers from your parents. Is our ability to talk, to engage with strangers, is this something that we inherit, do you think? Um, I do think that we can learn to do it from the example of the people who raised us. So, you know, I come from a family of funeral directors, actually, and my parents are hyper social people. Um, they'll talk to people in restaurants. They'll talk to people on the street. They'll make friends even well into their seventies. They're still making new friends, which for me is kind of a life goal. I think that's really admirable. Was this and really embarrassing for you as a child? I know when I talk to people publicly in front of my kids, they're deeply embarrassed, maybe because I'm naturally weird, but were you, were you embarrassed as a child or were you always proud of the fact that your parents were able to talk so publicly? I don't think I thought about it one way or the other. Um, I definitely wasn't embarrassed. I think, you know, I grew up in Boston. I grew up in, a, in an Irish and Italian neighborhood, and I think it was just a very garrulous place. I think people talked a lot, so it didn't seem unusual to me um, in a way that it would seem unusual to someone who you know, might have grown up in the suburbs or something. Um but it definitely modeled something for me that was really valuable that I, that I, you know, obviously resonated with me in a really profound way. Joe, the subtitle of your, your book is a little worrying. It's the benefits of co connecting in a suspicious world. Is the world we live in, and this is much of the theme of the book, is it particularly suspicious? Have we always lived in a suspicious world? 
There's always been suspicion. Um, we're wired for it to a certain degree. Um, you know, there's a there's a theory that what people are is um, they have a moral dial almost. Uh, this is an idea advanced by Alan Buchanan at Harvard um, that when we're in a certain context, the dial can be cranked all the way to xenophobia, right? <clears throat> Where you hate strangers, you dehumanize strangers. That's when all of humanity's darkest misadventures tend to happen. Um, but there's also another setting where when we feel comfortable, when we feel safe, we can be remarkably accepting to strangers. We can be remarkably open to having um, positive interactions with them. So, you know, I think the, the degree of suspiciousness in the world waxes and wanes, just like the degree of overall hostility probably waxes and wanes. Um, but I do think we're, we're wired for suspicion. Um, but when we do feel that we're under threat, when we do feel like we're competing for resources, that people are trying to take things away from us, it really cranks the dial hard in the opposite direction towards, towards suspiciousness and, and, you know, even dehumanization. If there's an ideology, Joe, at the heart of the book, it's the ideology of cosmopolitanism. Uh, one of the heroes of the book, he's actually a hero of mine too, is the, uh, the historian, the very distinguished cosmopolitan writer, thinker, Theodore Zeldin. Tell me about Zeldin. He's the author of many books. He's an expert on the French, but his book, Conversation, How Talk Can Change Our Lives, was also a bestseller. What is it about Zeldin that should inspire us? It's such a, yeah, it's such a conversation, such a great book. Um, he's a legendary English historian. Um, he's written most famously a 3000 page history of French, um, an emotional history of France, which is a pretty spectacular work. But his vocation um, over the last several decades has been to talk to as many strangers as he possibly can. Um, for his own personal growth. Um, and as he does that, he's kind of developed a worldview around it that talking to strangers will solve a lot of the social problems that we're experiencing today. That it's a really powerful thing when you have two different people coming together and talking and they'll create something. You know, he he believes that the future is in more something that's more akin to procreation. Um, what happens when two people start talking to each other? And, um, you know, to further this mission, he created an organization called the Oxford Muse, which throws these big conversation dinners, um, these big feasts of strangers where they gather sometimes hundreds of people at big long tables and they'll pair you up with a stranger and give you a list of questions, a menu of conversational topics that you're to discuss when you sit down with this total stranger. And they're really probing, really personal questions. And, you know, within seconds, you are locked into a, a fairly intimate conversation with someone you'd never met before. And when you do that, it gives you access to new perspectives, new experiences. Um, it allows you to explore the life of someone else and vice versa. And it helps form a bond. I mean, I did it with Zeldin in Helsinki and I made a friend. The first person I was paired with um, became a friend. I ended up spending like a few days hanging around with him when I was in Helsinki and we're still in touch. Um, but it's, yeah, Zeldin is like a zealot for this. And I don't mean zealot in a bad way. I mean, he's very passionate about trying to facilitate conversations between strangers um, because, you know, to him, it can be a really beautiful thing, but it, it can also be the sort of thing that helps shore up um, ailing societies. Would it be fair to say that um, one of the reasons why Zeldin um, is, is such a master of the art of conversation, the art of being a cosmopolitan is because he himself is a cosmopolitan. Uh, he has no roots to geography. I think he was born in Palestine, lived all over the world. Um, and in that sense, you have a wonderful quote from the great Enlightenment thinker, Denis Diderot, on uh, cosmopolitanism and the value of conversation too. Um, link Diderot and, and, and Zeldin and that strain of enlightenment cosmopolitanism. 
Yeah, there's there's kind of an idea at the core of it where um, you're limiting your personal growth by limiting the ways that you'll interact with the world and the people that you'll interact with. Um, so you take my example, if I just hung around with like, you know, Irish Catholic people from Boston, like me, um, I'm not going to gain access to that wide, um, a range of experiences and insights, um, and perspectives. And, you know, there's this idea and I'll shift over to Arthur Aaron, the psychologist, this idea of self-expansion, um, that is also kind of like, for me, captures the heart of cosmopolitanism where the more experiences you have and the more profound things that happen to you and the more challenges that you overcome and the more people you meet expand you in some way, right? They force you to grow. They force you to consider other vantage points. Um, in some cases they can teach you about the world. They can teach you, you know, how the best way to engage is, um, you know, for me, a lot of the time it's like a, like a speed bump, um, on the road to prejudice, right? When you know a lot of different types of people, it makes it much harder to be prejudiced. It makes it harder to dismiss whole groups of people when you have positive contact with members of that group. Um, and I think that that's true. I mean, if uh, for an African-American, for example, traveling through the South, we've had lots of shows about that. I, I think it might actually be the reverse. Well, it depends on the nature of the context. So basically, the ideal here is that you're meeting as equals. You're respectful of one another. It's not just being in you know the same physical space as someone. Obviously, if you're a member of a traditionally marginalized community and you're surrounded by people who are you know the oppressor class, that's going to be a fundamentally different dynamic than it would be for me hanging around in Ireland or something. Um, but when you know people do connect as equals, when they are expressing curiosity about each other, when they're trying to learn about each other, I think that's that's the soul of cosmopolitanism right there. It's that sort of roving eye, that sort of um, sense of dauntless curiosity in the face of, of racial differences and political differences and social differences and things like that. One of the Arab characters, one of my favorite writers, someone who comes up very often actually in this show is, is James Baldwin. He comes up from time to time in this book, in your book too. Um, how does Baldwin fit in? On the one hand, of course, he himself was a remarkable cosmopolitan a uh, man born in in uh, in the American South, who uh, who who went to Europe and embraced uh, and was embraced by by European culture. On the other hand, of course, he's a man who's written um, as much as anyone about racial prejudice uh, and his notion of identity and of, of of the politics of race is something now that's central to our culture. What does Baldwin teach us about race and cosmopolitanism and the ability to talk to people of different color skins? Yeah, he had a great line, and I'm probably not going to quote it accurately because I don't have the book with me. But basically knowing that, you know, the ideal is that when I know that my soul trembles, I know that yours does too. And that's that's a place to start, you know, recognize my humanity, recognizing your humanity, recognizing that even despite our differences, um, there is the possibility of, of connection. There is the possibility of having a relationship, positive relationship as equals. Um, but also all of the all the roadblocks that have been thrown in the way by um, by, you know, a racist culture, all the things that make it much more difficult for people to make those connections. Are you worried, though, Joe, that in our age of um, so-called political correctness, of cancel culture, at least seen from, from conservatives, that we never really meet strangers? As soon as we meet someone, whether it's their sexual or their racial identity, we already, for better or worse, unavoidably jump to conclusions. 
Yeah. And I think part of that is in the wiring and part of the, you know, the wiring of the human mind. Part of it is certainly cultural. Um, you know, cancel culture is kind of a slippery term. Some people. Yeah, I'm not crazy about the, the term, yeah, but we all know what it means. It's a yeah, it's definitely abused. What I worry about most of all is um, sort of the the difficulty of getting people to talk to each other. You know, for me, it's a question of training yourself against dismissiveness and contempt when you're faced with a person who might come from a different background than you or might um, hold beliefs that you disagree with. Um, I think if that's going to be our default setting going forward, I don't think there's any way to hold the country together. I think we're this is a hyper diverse country um, without a basic sense of curiosity and respect about one another. Is it as um, diverse though as people think? Most people will still watch the same uh, shows on the internet. Most people dress in uh, in, this, in clothes from the same stores. Uh, they eat the same kind of food. W why is America more diverse th than it was 50 or 100 years ago? Well, the percentage of foreign-born Americans right now is the highest it's been since like the 19-teens. Um, so in terms of racial breakdown, in terms of immigrants versus native born, it's definitely more diverse than it's been in a long time. And, it, and the early, you know, 19, early 19... 20s, 19 teens was an explosion of um, of immigration, um, and America struggled with that too. I think I think Americans are much more diverse than you give them credit for. I think you have a great variety of races and ethnicities, of different philosophies. I think the problem with a moment like ours, which is hyper polarized, is that partisans on the on the fringes try to make it seem as though there are only two people. You know what I mean? Like partisanship at its core hyperpolarization at its core is an oversimplification of people who are not us. It's a dehumanization of people who are not us. So when you really get into that us and them thinking where we are one thing and they are another thing. And, you know, once you push that far enough, there's no reason for us to talk because they can't be reasoned with. They can't be talked to um, that, I think, tears societies apart. But I think there's phenomenal diversity in America. I mean, especially with the Internet, because it's not like in the 90s where everyone was watching Seinfeld together because there was nothing else on at that time. Um, there's so many, there's so much more information now. There's so many more entertainment options. There's access to millions of podcasts and, you know, a, a universe of music, a universe of books. Um, I think, yeah, I, I would say that, you know, individualism is probably alive and well in America right now, despite the kind of block thinking of, uh, of po political partisans. Yeah, you say we need more blockchain and less network TV. One of my favorite bits um, in the book, uh, Joe, was the section where you travel on a train uh, across America and you talk to strangers. I grew up in Europe and I spent a lot of time traveling on trains. It was always a wonderful way to talk to people. Uh, I'm showing for people just listening an image of Patricia Highsmith's Strangers on a Train. Highsmith, of course, more than anyone else, perhaps um, triggered our suspicious mind and her brilliant book, Strangers on a, on a Train, that was turned into a Hitchcock movie, speaks to that. What is it about trains that makes us less suspicious, Joe? There's like, um, I found it in an old advice column from like 60 years ago <clears throat> about how, why it's permissible to talk to strangers at a house party and not in the street. And the line was, um, the roof is the permission. So you're in the same physical space, right? And you're in the same physical space long enough that you're going to recognize each other. I mean, I was on that train for 48 hours. I, I rode it from Chicago to Los Angeles. Um, so, you know, you see people, you're, you know, you recognize them. So that gets you past one hump that kind of inhibits these sorts of interactions. 
um, you're on a train and you're sitting around. No one's busy. No one's running around. Like you're just sitting, you're relaxed. There's something about the motion of a train that makes people a little more thoughtful, I think, a little more calm. Um, and you have an easy conversational opener with everyone you meet, which is where are you going? Right. Um, and that's the, that's one of the greatest questions there is. I mean, you can, you can ask that question in any context and it tends to open some doors, but you know, when people tell you where they're going, you get a little bit of the, their life story. Maybe, you know, people dine together on these trains. So I was a solo traveler and I would walk into the dining car at dinner time, and people would just wave, wave me over and I would sit with people and we would just talk for hours. And, um, and it was wonderful. The conversations were great. They were surprisingly great. I did not expect them to be as interesting as they were. Um, and, you know, I'm still friendly with some of the people I met Does on the train. Does it speak, Joe, to the, the need for public space? I mean, trains aren't formally public space. They're owned by private railway companies. But in contrast with traveling by car, for example, we, we do exist in the same space. I'm intrigued by how different airline travel is actually from train. People don't talk to one another on airlines, whereas they do on uh, on trains. People are more suspicious. And of course, we have all sorts of stories now about violence of passengers on board planes. Why why do planes somehow capture the the nastiness of public, uh, of, of, of privatized space, whereas trains speak to the, the, the public nature of space and our ability to talk to one another? Yeah, this is based on nothing but my own experience. I'll say that as a caveat. But um, I think planes are literally a pressurized environment. I think they're physically uncomfortable. I think it's very unpleasant and arguably kind of demeaning um, the process that you have to go through in order to get on the train in the first place. Um, when they change the seating rules where it's just chaos boarding, there's sort of a competition for resources. There's a bit of panic. Will I get my you know carry-on bag into the overhead or is this other guy going to get there first? Um, airlines have done everything they could do to make it as unpleasant as possible, short of just crashing all the planes um, or shutting down the air conditioning, which I've actually been on planes that didn't have air conditioning, um, which was funny because then people had something to talk about. But trains are, you know, they're they're much more, I don't know if genteel is the word, but they're definitely much more relaxed. To me, it just feels like a more dignified way to travel. Um, I feel like I think better on a train, whereas when you're on a plane, you're just thinking about how badly you want to get off the plane. Um, but at the same token, I've definitely had conversations with people on trains that have been really interesting. Um, or I'm, I'm sorry, on planes. Um, but it's tough, you know, and you have to be careful initiating a conversation on a plane because you have to recognize that the other person is, has been mishandled uh, and is, you know, may not be in the mood to engage, may just want to go into a tunnel for the next uh, two hours until the flight is over. Yeah, you in the book, um, you uh, you 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 write about a group called Braver Angels who are dedicated to getting Americans to talk to one another, perhaps in rooms. One way for us to talk to one another is in motion. Uh, as you say, planes are bad places. Trains are good places. Perhaps walking is another area where uh, walking in parks in public spaces are are, are groups like braver angels committed to public conversation or better conversation um, yeah, they, do, yeah. do they do they talk about um walking for example or the ability to escape private space as a way of, of building conversation they don't but but i did a lot of research into that um where it's really in this kind of cuts back to your previous question which i, I recognize now i didn't fully address um public space is really important um, in literal public space, right? A, a space where everyone's free to use it. Everyone has equal access. It's not, you know, you're not 
um, prohibited from going in because you're a certain income level or you're a certain race or you're a certain sexuality. Um, it would be like a beautiful public space like Bryant Park in New York City or Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. Um, all these places where people feel calm, they feel comfortable. Um, those are the places that the sociologist um, Elijah Anderson calls cosmopolitan canopies. They're places that just by their design and their feel seem to facilitate conversations between strangers from different groups. Um, like the Reading Terminal Market in Philadelphia, he studied, he studied Rittenhouse Square. But those sorts of places where, yeah, where you are out in public, you are together. And for some reason, the social norm against talking to strangers seems to be relaxed. Um, I did a lot of experiments in those places. And sure enough, like it, it works, it works really well for some reason. You know, you could talk to someone on a sidewalk and it's going to be very different than if you talk to them in the park that's 20 feet away from the sidewalk. For Braver Angels, you know, it's... It's tough because one of the drivers of polarization in America is the physical distance between partisans, you know, increasingly due to mm. the, the phenomenon that Bill Bishop. The breakdown of geography. We, we've had a number of shows about, yeah. um, if you like, the crisis of, 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 of geography in America. Um, yeah. uh, so, for example, we had uh, Tom Zollo, an excellent travel writer, he wrote, um, the American concept of geography has undergone a powerful shift. Place is less important than it's ever been to those who can free themselves from it, yet more important to those who aren't able to leave it. Um, so geography has become um, a, a place, a, a thing that divides us rather than unites us yeah, in I conversational and in sociological and economic terms. Yeah, I love that quote. Um, I mean, there's evidence to show that when you put different people, different types of people in the same space and they talk and they relate to each other as equals, um, it tends to moderate political beliefs um, when they but are that, separate. Does it really, Joe? Um, uh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I mean, we had uh, the marvelous writer Carl Hoffman on the show who followed the Trump circus around. There's an excellent book, Liar's Circus. And it's a book about how he spoke very personally and very meaningfully to the Trump supporters, but it didn't bridge any political divides and they, they, they left as disunited as, as ever. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know that argument. I think that argument is frankly bunk. Um, people need to have reasonable expectations as to what they can get from these conversations. So bringing together Republicans and Democrats to talk, there seems to be an assumption that if I go talk to someone who so, you know, I'm a Democrat, if I go talk to a Republican, I'm going to come away from that having changed their mind about the things that are most important to them in the world, right? That's not a reasonable expectation for a conversation. What Braver Angels goes for is putting those people together so they can, number one, literally stand the side of one another, sit at a table together. And then when they have the conversations under the aegis of Braver Angels, they have to connect first as people. They have to talk about where they're from. They have to talk about their kids, their grandparents, their parents, their dog, whatever it is they want to talk about. And invariably, those people form a little bond, right? They're like, okay, we can, this is interesting. I like this person. Like, I can talk to this person. And only then, after that bond is formed, can you move into the more contentious territory? Because otherwise, all you're going to be doing is screaming at each other about abortion. Um, so, you know, it's, it's ambitious and, and not terribly ambitious at the same time. My thinking on it is that we are so polarized at this point and the water has been so poisoned that we're looking at 20 years, right? I think it'll be a, a national rebuilding effort that's going to take decades if we're serious about it, if we're serious about repairing this damage and restoring like a functioning government to the United States. Um, talking to strangers in like passing in, in conversations at Braver Angels or in living room conversations or things like that, that doesn't get us to the finish line, but we can't get anywhere without doing that first. That's my thinking on it. I mean, I remember there was like a- Yeah, we had the, uh, the, the, um, 
the uh, the humorist PJ O'Rourke on the show. He has a new book out, A Cry from the Far Middle. I'm not sure how serious PJ was, but he said the real challenge is is fewer people um, people keeping their mouths shut. Uh, the problem is the the multiplicity, uh, according to PJ, of opinions. And we had another um, writer on the show, Jimena Vengachoa, listen like you mean it. Do we need to learn to listen, um, uh, Joe, rather than continually express ourselves? Yeah, without question. I mean, I don't even think what's expressed half the time is, a, is an opinion. I don't, I'm not even sure how much a lot of people are, how much thought people are putting into what they're saying on Twitter or what they're saying in, in arguments of parties or whatever. Um, I think more and more of the assertions that people make are membership cards, right? They're signifying membership in their group. Um, so it's not even necessarily like the conclusion of a logical series of thoughts that got them to the, and I'm, this is a gross generalization. So there are lots of people who are very informed and very smart and have very good opinions. But I think, you know, most of the shouting that happens isn't an opinion. It's not really the content that's, that matters. It's, you know, asserting that I'm part of my group. Um, and you know, that's kind of like, a. Um, it's become like um, an instinct or not an instinct. It's like an impulse, right? So every time we hear something we don't like, we just snap back at it. We don't really take it in. We don't really listen to it. We just yell our thing back and then they yell their thing at us and then that's how it goes. Nothing ever gets done. Um, by learning to listen, um, you will be awakened to the reality that the people on the other side are more complicated than you're giving them credit for. And that sounds like a little thing and it sounds like something we should all instinctively know, but we kind of don't. Um, but when you do that, when you're actually curious and you're curious about what got them to that belief, um, and who they are and, and how their experiences have helped form that belief, even if you don't agree with that belief, um, you'll start to see a little more diversity and you'll start to understand that it is possible to have a conversation about this, um, that doesn't involve screaming. And again, this is just the first step. There's so much more work that needs to be done. And there's, you know, right. and so, so, policy and everything else. Yeah. And your book is in many ways an attempt to and I'm quoting here, to become a master in talking to strangers. You you talk to a woman called uh, Georgie Nightingale who offers classes at Regents University in London about talking to strangers. You promote the work of the, the, uh, the, the British uh, sociologist Gillian M. Sandstrom, another uh, theorist on conversation. Can we learn this? Um, yeah. Joe, is this something you talk about 20 years, but... Is this something that can be professionally done? Should we go to therapists of conversation? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, 20 years, when I say 20 years, I mean, that's what needs to happen in order to make American politics functional again. Um, and that's just a you know back of the envelope calculation. We can definitely like, okay, so we back up. So one of the things that, that really keeps people from talking to strangers, and there are a lot of factors and they range from racial factors to urban design. You know, there's a multitude of stuff that keeps them from doing this. Um, but one thing that we're really worried about, and Jillian Sandstrom found this time and time again, is that we worry that we're going to be bad at it. We worry we don't know how to do it. We worry we don't have permission to do it. We worry that we won't know what to talk about or what we do want to talk about is going to be boring to the other person. We worry the other person's going to be going to think we're crazy. We worry that we're not going to know how to end the conversation once it happens. Um, there's so many anxieties surrounding our capability of having these, like our abilities and having these conversations. And what Jillian found and what you know, a number of other psychologists have found too, is that though we're extremely pessimistic about the potential for talking to strangers and we're really anxious about how it's going to go, um, people in studies overwhelmingly find that it goes well. 
you know, there's a famous study done on the Chicago mass transit and another one done on London mass transit by Nicholas Epley at the University of Chicago and Juliana Schroeder, another psychologist, where people were just like, you can't talk to strangers on the subway. That's crazy. Like no one does that. And so they sent hundreds of people out to do it and no one was rejected. And the average length of conversation was way longer than people predicted it would go. Like some of the, you know, Jillian did some work where conversations were going on for 15 minutes. Um, it's remarkable. And it's a testament to the fact that there is something innate about our ability to connect with different people, with, with strangers. Um, that though we can be xenophobic, though we can be afraid of each other, though we can do unspeakable things to one another, there is a capacity in us um, that is not that far from the surface. And when we access it, um, we find that it, it comes pretty naturally to us and it feels pretty good. And the research tends to back that up. What does Twitter tell us? Um, Joe, you're on Twitter. We follow each other. We're strangers. Um, but many of us behave very badly on Twitter in terms of the the disrespect, the intolerance, the racism, the sexism, the the, the general intolerance. Um, you said before that the internet has made America or the world a more open place, but a lot of people argue that Twitter has actually narrowed things down, made us more tribal. Um, yeah. Do, do, in terms of building conversation, uh, does Twitter speak to the potential of the digital or the need to really um, when we have real conversations to, to go analog, to go into that park, to go onto the train. Yeah, it's like any major technological advancement when it's a double-edged sword. So, you know, best case scenario, Twitter gives us access to millions of people from different places with different views, different backgrounds, and gives us an opportunity to like experience their worlds a little bit and, and hear them in a way that we didn't get to hear them before. Um, used badly, Twitter is just a, a coliseum for partisan warfare and, and trashing people and saying nasty things to each other anonymously. You know, I think much of the worst of Twitter is the result of not being in the physical presence of the other person. Um, it's not being able to see their face. It's not being able, you know, not not risking getting punched for saying something abhorrent to somebody. You know what I mean? Like there's no guardrails on the conversation. We evolve to have certain guardrails when we interact with other people um, in person. You know, their humanity is is a lot less deniable than it is when they're just an avatar on Twitter. So it depends on how you use it. I think Twitter can be really good if you're curious, um, if you're really interested in people, if you want to learn, if you want to gain access to cultures that you didn't have access to, it can be really good. Um, but I do think the downside is real. I think it poisons our perception of humanity if if not used correctly, right? So if you're, if you're experiencing, experiencing the world through Twitter, um, if a great deal of your interaction with the world is through Twitter, you're gathering a very specific type of data that is a small set of data and um, and incomplete, right? If I experience the world through Twitter, I'm going to think people are revolting, that people are disgusting, that this species is irredeemable. And I'm, you know, I don't love Twitter, so people use it better than I do. Um, but that's my perception. If I was in that swamp all day long, I would think that people are terrible. And what talking to strangers in person does um, is it gives you better data um, because these interactions tend to go well. Um, because you end up connecting with people and having interesting conversations with people and learning about them. And, and, you know, a lot of these conversations are poignant and a lot of them can be really funny. Um, you come away with better data. So after like two years of doing this very intensively, uh, cause I did it myself, I put myself into this and I tried to get very good at it personally. Um, I joke that I'm the only person who came out of 2019 feeling better about humanity, whereas everybody else felt worse because they were experiencing their own species largely through the news and through social media. Um, and that's, you know, again, it can be valuable, but you have to be mindful that you're not getting the whole picture when you do that, when you live that way. I, I think perhaps books are a much better way of 
having a conversation or beginning a conversation or writing about conversation, certainly than Twitter. Your new book, uh, Joe uh, Cohane's new book, The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Co- Connecting in a Suspicious uh, World, is, as Joe, you said, it's, um, it's optimistic, um, it's progressive, and it's humanistic. So congratulations on the book. I think anyone who cares about conversation needs to read it and practice it. Uh, you are um, in, uh, in, in Boston, Joe, at the moment, right? I'm in New York right now. Oh, whoops. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, you're in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I know you said you were from Boston. Um, In these strange times where we're not sure whether to go out or not, perfect time to read The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. What else, though, uh, Joe, should people be reading in these strange times when um, we're not sure whether we should or shouldn't go out and wear masks and look people in the eye? Yeah, I mean, I wish I had something more applicable to that, but um, I, my daughter and I have just been reading books about peregrine falcons. I have a, a four-year-old, soon-to-be five-year-old, and we saw a peregrine falcon um, hunting from the roof of the Met Museum in Manhattan, uh, and it was spectacular. And so we've been obsessed lately. So um, right now I'm reading um, Falcon by Helen McDonald, and Helen McDonald did Master Hawk, yeah. you know, yeah. And so this was, I, I believe this is her first book, but it's just sort of a a history of the peregrine falcon and the biology of them and the behavior and also the mythology surrounding them, like how they're perceived by humans. Uh, it's great. Mm. It's it's absolutely fascinating. We had the nature writer Carl Safina on the show last year talking about language and animals. I wonder uh, whether we should be limiting our conversational skills to, to other humans or also perhaps be talking to animals, peregrine falcons, whales, and, and so on. Yeah, well, I'm I'm going to go fly a peregrine falcon with my daughter in about two months, so I'll report back on uh, how well our conversation went. Well, I hope you will report back, Joe. Maybe <laughs> uh, maybe you'll write a book about animals and conversation. Congratulations again on the new book. It's just out, The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World by Joe Cohane. I think it's your first book. Congratulations on that. And we'll have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future to talk about Conversation and Peregrine Falcons. Joe Cohane, thank you so much. Sounds great. Andrew, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.